make, Pastor Glenn is going to make a brief presentation. Thank you. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Today, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. So I just wanted to, uh, I was originally going to do a very passionate plea about our flag because so many people don't know, but I wrote something down and uh, I'm going to read it to you as I wrote it. So today from one veteran to my fellow veterans, thank you for your service. I think I could speak on behalf of all veterans that served in the United States military that it carries a very proud meaning to us. When we wore that uniform and represented our country, we felt great pride in doing so. One of the proudest moments of my life was when I graduated from military boot camp and I put on the dress greens uniform, got on an airplane to go home, and I remember feeling such tremendous pride wearing that uniform in public. Even today, we still feel proud about our service to our country. When we joined the military, we understood that it meant uh, would mean having to possibly defend our country. Our lives were made available should we be called upon to make that ultimate sacrifice of fighting for our nation. Some here did serve in that greater capacity, and to you, you deserve double honor. And this day, an extra thank you. Ultimately, our service involved this flag. The flag of the United States of America stands for freedom. 
His freedom is in jeopardy today. The freedom that this flag stands for was paid with the price of human lives. The stars are the flags that represent the states, but it's the stripes that carry such a great significance, representing the first 13 British colonies that declared independence from the kingdom of Britain and became the first states of the Union. The flag represents freedom at a high cost. It represents amazing men and women that gave their lives for the freedom of our nation. When we swore into the military, we swore in to promise to defend that freedom. Freedom that most have taken for granted. Freedom that is more and more in jeopardy each day. For this we served. For this we must thank all that have served and do serve. And so I say thank you for your service to this great country. And if we could give another round of applause. Wow, thank you, Pastor Glenn, for that great blessing. Amen. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter. I want to present a message to you tonight. I got inspired about this uh, while I was traveling uh, overseas, and I felt God really speaking to me. I'm inspired about a lot of sermons. Um, I'm very much looking forward to the revival with Frank King. Uh, but it's robbed me of a Sunday, so I'll have to bottle it all up until the following Sunday. But I do want to say something about uh, uh, Frank King coming. Let's treat that just as a revival, even though it does have a family and a children's uh, element to it. It's a great opportunity for you to bring people uh, that need Jesus. Uh, It will uh, certainly help marriages and parents and children and young people. Uh, But if you're single... Uh, unmarried, no children, the revival's going to be for you as well. So let's fill the house of God. Uh, the schedule's a little bit different, as Pastor indicated, uh, starting this Friday night, day after tomorrow, uh, Saturday morning seminars, Saturday night, Sunday morning, and Sunday night. So let's have a full house, and as I said, we're going to treat this just as a regular uh, revival, and we're going to believe God to do great things. Amen. Second Peter chapter 2, and we'll get to reading the text in a moment. There is something that is very much lacking today, and I think you would all be in agreement with me on that point. And it's lacking because the value of it is no longer appreciated, and the willingness to pay a price for it is diminishing. We are not, in many cases, the examples that we should be. That's what I want to preach on tonight, Examplesship. And it's not because we don't think it's right. We're just not willing to pay a price. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine, a colleague. He's about my age, has four children between mid-20s and forty. And he was talking to me about his wife's prayer life, that all throughout their marriage, their ministry, he has been a missionary 
uh, overseas, has pastored in a number of places, and now functions uh, as one of the leaders in our fellowship. Uh, uh, his wife has had a very committed prayer life, uh, and every single day, every single morning, no matter what happened, uh, she could be heard praying. If she didn't have a big enough closet, it would be in her bedroom. Uh, now they have a, a walk-in closet off their bedroom, so that's where she prays now. Her children grew up hearing their mother's audible prayers every single day of their lives without exception. One of their daughters was telling Mark, or Mark was telling me that, uh, Pastor Mark Olson, that the daughter would curl up on the bed in their parents' room when the mother was praying all through from when she was very small all the way up through her teenage years. If she was at home, that's where she would go while her mother was praying. Year after year, those prayers filling the house brought great comfort to this daughter. The other day, his 40-year-old son called. Mark happened to be in the bedroom. His wife was in the uh, closet praying, and he answered the phone, and his son, who lives in another state, is married, going to one of our churches, uh, could hear the faint uh, uh prayers of his mother on the phone and he said dad could you just hold the phone over where mom's praying i want to hear it just for a few minutes now think about the unbelievable incredible influence of her prayers in her children's lives because she was willing to pay a price to be a prayer warrior in her home. And she's not thinking. She's got a relationship with God. She's desperate. She needs to get a hold of God, not realizing the incredible example that that would be. Those children will remember that for the rest of their lives, and it will orient them in that very same direction. You know, it used to be the expected norm. Parents, leaders, public figures would be examples. If you're a public figure, if you're a police officer, if you're a judge, if you're a teacher, if you're a leader, if you're a parent, it was understood that you had a responsibility to be an example. No more does that exist like it once did. And if they weren't the examples that they should be, they would be called on it. What we're talking about tonight is something that God instituted in creation. And I'll make that point in a few moments. This business of example, the power of it, the need for it, the necessity of it, has been folded into God's created order That's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 14, verse 7, none of us lives to himself, no one dies to himself. No one does, because our lives are intertwined. How we talk, how we live, how we treat others, how we relate to God emanates and has powerful impact. I want to preach from this incredible text that I've been pondering for a number of uh, days now, and I want to present to you some truth and revelation. Uh, this message is called uh, Following His Steps. First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. 
Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the harsh, for this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, for what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, that's commendable to God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by those stripes, by whose stripes you were healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Let's pray and ask God's help tonight. Father, thank you for this great gathering. Thank you so much for every believer gathered together here tonight. Lord, we sanctify this time and this moment for you to touch our hearts, fill these altars, advance your will, bring repentance, and perform in us your good pleasure. And we thank you in Jesus' name. So let's talk about this business of example and the principle is what I want to talk about of example. Human beings, and here's the basic premise. Human beings were created by God to be impressionable. We are like a blank slate when we're born. Now, we have a fallen nature. I understand that. That gives us a propensity towards selfishness, pride, uh, and self-will and such things. But essentially, when we're born, we are a blank slate. And all of us tonight represent uh, that blank slate. Only now, a lot has been written on it that represents who we are. What's written on that blank slate is how we have been influenced by others. And no matter how old you are, there's still room to be written on that slate that is going to be the consequence of the influence and the example of others for good or bad. Now, this works in varying degrees. Some of the things that we experience at the hands of another example, for good or bad, stay with you for the rest of your life. We're either scarred sometimes by how somebody influenced us. Maybe they violated you, they hurt you, or over the process of time because of betrayals or selfishness or sin or harsh treatment or a lifetime of criticism. It hurt you and influenced you, and some of those things stay with people for life. But, of course, it works for good. I think these children raised up in the household of this prayer warrior. They're never going to forget this. They remember phrases of her prayer, things that she prayed for, not just praying for, but when she was agonizing for God, before God, for needs in her own life. 
And so this is how our lives are shaped. And this is how we came to be the people we are. Influence. Other people writing on the blank slate that our life is. This is what discipleship is all about. The definition of Christian discipleship is the impartation of spirit from one heart and one life to another. That comes through relationship. It comes through interaction. It comes through exampleship and relationship. At the Last Supper in John chapter 13, there is the story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Now, he viewed... One of the biggest problems uh, after he was going to ascend into heaven uh, as being the disciples' ability to love each other and to serve one another. Over and over he said, you shall love one another. That's the biggest problem we have in our church. Uh, It's people uh, and their relationships with other members of the congregation. So Jesus sees this coming. He washes their feet. And he said, you call me teacher, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. That's how it works in life. Jesus didn't just run around telling us what to do. He showed us. He demonstrated. He left great big footprints. And we'll get to those in just a moment. Of course, sin perverts this. I preach a lot of sermons from uh, or use this verse or use it for a text or refer to it in a lot of my sermons uh, on inherited curses that pass uh, from father to sons to daughters uh, and through generations. And the Bible says, visiting uh, the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. So here's the father's uh, sinful example, uh, and the impressionable children uh, are influenced and victimized by that. That's why crime runs in family, drug addiction, alcoholism, uh, suicide. uh, uh, All of these things run in families. Because God created us to be impressionable. We're influenced in life for good or bad. You may remember, if you're my age at least, perhaps, an anti-cigarette smoking commercial from the 1960s. I remember sitting in front of the television as a small boy watching this commercial sometime around the late 60s. They started coming out with cigarette smoking is bad and unhealthy, causes cancer, etc. And so they had this cigarette commercial called Like Father, Like Son. And the commercial uh, showed a father playing with this little, probably about a four-year-old boy. Commercial starts out, uh, they're playing baseball. He's playing catch, trying to teach him how to bat. And the next little signette is that the father is washing the car. The little boy is watching the dad, taking his little sponge and doing what his dad is doing and watching his dad. And then the next little scene, they're both sitting up against a tree with their backs up against a tree, 
The boy is sitting next to the father, and the father reaches into his pocket, uh, pulls out a pack of cigarettes, uh, and lights the cigarette, puts the pack down, and the commercial ends uh, with the camera on the pack of cigarettes, uh, and a little four-year-old hand reaching over to take hold of the cigarettes, like father, like son. That little boy is impressionable. He wants to be like his dad. His dad is his hero, and the father's not realizing uh, that he's setting an example that can kill his son. You will wield influence by virtue of how you live. People are going to be victimized by your life. No man is an island. The Scripture puts it, no man lives to himself. No man dies to himself. So let's define this term. In our text, in verse 21, the Bible refers to Jesus as having left us an example. That word means a copy for imitation. Now, he apparently thought this was necessary because it is one of the things that Jesus became, and it's one of the ways that he identifies himself. He identifies himself as an example, and his life is referred to as an example, as someone who lived for the purpose of demonstrating to others who are impressionable how they could live, how they should live, and he left behind these footprints. Now, this is a responsibility that all of us are charged with, apparently. Matthew says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men. Well, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. Well, that's not a Christian premise. You must care what people see in you. You must care what they think about you because Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Not enough for them to hear about it. People need to see Christianity at work in people's lives. And then the Bible says they will glorify your Father in heaven. This is such a serious matter that we're going to be held accountable for the quality of example that we set. Did you, by your example, make it hard or make it easier for those around you? Now, nobody is going to be able to use, on Judgment Day, a bad example to excuse or to exonerate bad behavior. But on the other hand, we're going to be held accountable for the quality of example we set because of what I just said. We make it either harder or we make it easier. Think about the alcoholic or the drug addict or the bitter or the angry parent who lives their life very carelessly. Think about the trauma and the difficulty that you're imposing. You're making it harder for them. That's why when we stand before God, we're going to be held accountable for the quality of example that we said. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Bible says, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort 
It is. So we need to see the possibility. We don't think of ourselves this way. We don't want to be this. But we need to see the possibility of being what the Bible calls a stumbling block. This describes how we could make it harder for someone around us by being a stumbling block. And sometimes, you know what? Those are the people we love the most. They're the ones that are closest to us, that are the most meaningful to us. We love the most. Those are the ones that we run the highest risk of being a stumbling block. And it's not that we don't love them enough. Sometimes we're just not willing to pay the price to be the example that they need us to be. Romans says, so that each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us resolve this not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. That word stumbling block means an obstacle or something that causes someone to trip or to struggle or to stumble. Again, he writes, beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those that are weak. So it's very possible. Maybe it's because we're not paying attention. Maybe we're being a little too selfish with how we're going about living life. And so not having a prayer life, not reading our Bible, not going on outreach, not being faithful doesn't matter that much to us because we're driven by another agenda. But the the reality is, that how we're living our life is causing some people around us to struggle a little bit. When I got saved, a young man in the church named Mark Stair took me under his wing. You know, back in those days, uh, when I got saved in 1975, if someone had been in the church for six months, that was like, whoa, you've been here six months. I mean, they were, I mean, that was the epitome of sainthood. And so this, one of the main disciples in the church named Mark Stair took a liking to me, took me under his wing, taught me how to street preach. I preached my first sermon when he handed me the microphone. I went door-to-door witnessing with him, uh, called me, followed up on me. And it wasn't very long after I got saved, maybe four or five months uh, that one Sunday morning, I would always look for him. Every service, I would interact with him. He was my very best and closest friend in the church. One Sunday, he didn't show up. I'm looking. First time in the few months that I'd been saved that he didn't come to church. And so I went and asked his roommate, where's Mark? Well, Mark stole all the money of the guys that he was living with and split last night. I mean, I, in my four or five-month-old new convert heart, I can't describe to you how that, I couldn't, but Mark, no. This can't be true. I slid into a, a, a depression. I was discouraged. You know, I'm battling my own uh, demons. Uh, I've come off of drugs and alcohol and cigarettes. uh, And if he's going to behave like that, what hope is there for me? 
And I remember service after service. Uh, I would watch the door hoping that Mark would come back, but he never did. See, it's possible, and that's a little bit of an extreme case, but it's possible to put a stumbling block and to make the progress of those around you a little harder. Let's talk about the provision of example. It's interesting where this truth comes out in this context, in this particular verse that we read. This truth about Jesus being an example is placed in the context of one of the most challenging circumstances in life, and that is suffering unjustly at the hands of another. Listen, life is filled with hard, difficult things to do. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but to the harsh. Submit to the harsh, he says. For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief and suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it when you're beaten for your faults? You take it patient. In other words, I deserve this. I screwed up, messed up. I'm worthy of this. But he's saying, what about when you're doing good and you're treated harshly and badly and unfairly and unreasonably? What he's saying is that even in that circumstance, you have to keep a right heart, a right spirit. You have to love. You have to submit. And you need to serve. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. So that's totally against our instincts. If we do a good job, and our boss or a leader or somebody treats us harshly or unfairly, we are justified in being angry and upset and pulling back on working so hard, and we certainly don't have to submit. So how are we going to manage what he's saying we need to do? Back to the premise. Jesus does not expect you to do it because he told you to do it. He expects you to do it because he did it. He set an example. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. In all of these difficult challenges that we have in life, there's no mystery about how we're supposed to respond, because there are great big footprints right there that show us what to do. And that's what this text is all about in the most challenging areas of life. Jesus left us an example. We know what to do. Not because we've been told, but because we have been shown. Jesus faced what we have to face. 
as hard and difficult and challenging as your life and your situation and your circumstance may be. And I know I'm preaching to people tonight that are in crisis, have been through crisis, are dealing with hardships and challenges and difficulties of life. But can I give you the great news? There's a great big footprint that Jesus put right where you can see it that shows you what to do in the situation that you're in. So here's the question that we're going to have to examine tonight. You are expected to follow his example. Are you following his example? Do you see where his footprints are? And are you walking in those footprints in the most challenging areas of your life? We know what to do because he left very large footprints. Are you stepping into them? So let's look at some of these challenging areas that seem to trip a lot of people up. A lot of people mishandle these circumstances, but there they are. These footprints are there that when you run into this kind of a situation, you know exactly what to do. The first is in the whole realm of offense. How to handle offense, that's the big question of life. When you're wounded, when you're hurt, when you're betrayed, when you're offended, when somebody talks about you, lets you down. Mishandling offense. I can tell you this as a seasoned pastor of 36 years. Mishandling offense gets God's people into most of the trouble that they experience in their life. Conflict, anger, unforgiveness, cutting people off. And, you know, it doesn't matter. I could preach once a week on forgiveness, how to handle offense, and every service, most of the church would be convicted and come weeping at the altar. And then love and forgive everybody for about 15 minutes afterwards. The Bible could not be clearer, but what the Bible says apparently is not enough of a motive, and God recognizes that. In other words, Jesus knows it's not enough to tell you to forgive. And if it was enough, then this scripture should be sufficient. Matthew 6, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. That should be it. If you're sitting here tonight, angry, with unforgiveness, you've cut somebody off, you won't talk to somebody, you're mad at somebody, uh, then you're putting yourself in very dangerous uh, spiritual circumstances. uh, But it doesn't seem to be enough, does it? Because we still run around with unforgiveness. We still get mad when we're offended. We still mishandle our offenses. The most common way that carnality is manifested in a church is through the vehicle and the instrument of anger, unforgiveness, and offense. In our text, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. That word revile means to heap abuse upon. That's, that's offense, but worse. Most of the offenses that we experience in our lives are I don't believe they're intentional. I don't believe people are running around trying to hurt and offend you and get you upset and cross you and betray you and get you mad. 
We just do that inadvertently in life. We can't help ourselves. We're going to offend each other. The people that you rub shoulders with, we're going to offend each other. That's how life is. But in this case, they're doing it with intention. They're trying to hurt him. That word revile means uh, to heap abuse. Uh, It's worse than offense. Uh, And in the face of it, he doesn't become a reactionary, become bitter, get angry. In fact, from the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There is the footprint. Every time you're offended, every time you're hurt, every time somebody does something to you that offends you and makes you angry and hurts you, there is the footprint. Forgive them for they know not what they do. And he spoke that in the height of his pain and agony. He set an example. He left a footprint. Because telling you to forgive is not enough. He needs to show you how, and he did. And he expects us to follow up that and do the same. The second area where he left a footprint is in the arena of prayer. Does your prayer life reflect the example that Jesus set? What is it about his prayer life that is impossible for us to imitate the answer is nothing there's nothing about his prayer life that would say that he's jesus his prayer life is so far and above you can't hope he didn't pray 24 hours a day he prayed a small part of the day he set an example he left a footprint The Bible says, now in the morning, Mark 1, now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. There's a reason why we have morning prayer. That's where he left the footprint in the morning. What is it about that that's impossible? Well, it's Jesus. How can we be him? He left a footprint behind so that we can see what he did and do what he does. And, of course, this had an impact on the disciples. It came to pass when Jesus was praying, when he ceased, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples to pray. In other words, they saw this, and they're thinking, I want to be that. I want to do that. Let's ask him about it. Let's have him teach us and instruct us and help us. And, of course, we know these disciples became men of prayer. They became men who stepped in this footprint that Jesus left behind. At the greatest time of stress in Jesus' life, what does he do? When you're in stress and in crisis, there's a footprint there with the words prayer written on it. Sometimes it's the last thing people do in crisis. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Bible says he went a little further, fell on his face and prayed, and again a second time he went away and prayed. So he left the disciples again, went away again, and prayed the third time. That crisis of life. He's about to be arrested uh, and then tortured and then crucified. uh, And the agony and the stress uh, that was upon him as a man, uh, he's facing that and he's in prayer. There's the footprint that when you're in crisis, pray. When the morning sun is there, pray. 
establish a prayer life. The third area where he left a footprint is when it comes to our attitude toward people or love for people. See, this is one of the greatest challenges. We live in a very self-focused, self-centered, egocentric, narcissistic generation. People are becoming more self-focused. We think about us and me and my and ours. You know, in this regard, Jesus in his day was extremely radical. He lived in a very prejudiced culture. Romans were hated. Samaritans were rejected. Those were uh, half Jew, half Gentile. They couldn't dwell among other Jews. They had to live in their own area, and they were despised. Tax collectors uh, were rejects. There were sinners. There were Gentiles. Uh, there were lepers that had to live uh, outside uh, uh, the city limits in their own colony. Do you know it's not an accident that the Scripture finds Jesus interacting with all of the above? Spending his time with eating, with praying for, preaching to, talking to. But when he saw the multitudes, it says he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Remember the woman caught in the act of adultery. The Pharisees want to stone her. Jesus offers her forgiveness and gives her hope. They hated tax collector Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Would have had no friends among his countrymen. His only friends would have been other tax collectors. But Jesus walks right up to where he is invites himself into his house. Uh, He gets saved. He gives his life uh, over to repentance, uh, and he repays those who he has ripped off. It was to sinners and lepers and Gentiles and publicans that he went to. You remember the scene where he walks up to the group of lepers, uh, and the Bible says that he touches them. You don't touch a leper. But he touches them. He interacted with them. You know, here we are, we're Christians. Some of you have been saved for 10, 20, 30 years, maybe. You know, we can get pretty isolated. We don't interact on that kind of a level. You may have business dealings. You may buy groceries, et cetera, uh, from somebody. But we don't really act in terms of uh, a compassionate uh, motivation with those that are desperate in life and with those that are without hope. I've given the definition of compassion before that I've read and never forgotten. I think it's the very best uh, definition uh, of compassion uh, is the feeling uh, that what happens to you matters to me. That was the word uh, used, or that's the idea with uh, the Good Samaritan when the man was left uh, for dead, bleeding, had been stripped and robbed, uh, and the priest and the Levite look and pass him by. They couldn't have cared less. But the Samaritan comes along. Uh, what happened to you matters to me. Even though I don't know you, uh, there's a love in my heart for those uh, uh, that are oppressed, for those that cannot help themselves. Uh, Jesus had no limits to his capacity to love. We love, perhaps, but we have all kinds of limits. If it's, if it's not too inconvenient, if it doesn't cost me too much, 
Jesus had none all the way to the cross. First John says, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? The other area where Jesus left a footprint is in the arena of human suffering. Listen, this isn't pessimistic, but we know that life contains crisis and all of us will have our share of suffering. Different forms, different shapes, different sizes, different degrees. How do you deal with your suffering? Put this picture up that I ask you to put up. This is uh, a pastor uh, in uh, the Philippines that I met named Ronnie Garcia. And I talked with him, I think Wednesday, Thursday of the conference. I interacted with him. We had a meal uh, one afternoon. He's very good-tempered, you know, nice guy. We got along great. And then Friday night, we're sitting on the platform. And Boyette, the conference leader, leans over to me and he says, did you hear the story about uh, what's going on with Ronnie? And I said, no. And I didn't know Ronnie didn't tell me in all of our interaction and fellowship. He said, well, three years ago, Ronnie's wife had a massive stroke. She's paralyzed from the neck down and has the mentality of a baby. Their oldest daughter has a degree and had a career. She left that, moved back into the house to care for the mother. She's not on any life support, so they take care of her. Uh, She's very much alive in the sense of her organs and lungs and heart and breathing, but she's paralyzed from the neck down, and she has the mentality of a baby. When I heard that, I said, I do not have any problem. Show the next picture. This is Ronnie testifying that night. No, the next picture. This is Ronnie testifying that night uh, about what God's doing in his church. And they announced uh, of the four churches that were announced out of the conference, one of them uh, is a couple that he raised up and is planning out uh, uh, out of his church and out of his congregation. What do you do? Well, I'll tell you what you do. You keep on living for God. You keep on doing what you're called to do. God, you're going to have to help me. I can't cope. I can't handle this. I don't understand why this is happening. And actually, he came up to me that night and thanked me for uh, a sermon that I preached, that I preach here called, How Are You Handling Your Crisis? And the other one uh, called, No Ifs in the Kingdom of God. He thanked me for those and kind of turned away and didn't explain uh, why he was so grateful for those sermons. But now... Uh, I understand here's a man who's stepping into the footprints that Jesus left behind. When Jesus suffered, it says in our text, he did not threaten but committed himself to him who judges righteously. In other words, things are going to work out. This life is not all there is. This isn't the final say-so. This is my cross to bear. This is what I have to deal with. Other people have other problems. This is mine. I'm going to stay saved, live for God, serve the Lord, fulfill my ministry, and I'm leaving it all to God. What else can you do? You're going to get mad? You're going to get bitter? You're going to quit? You're going to run? So let me close by talking about the power of 
example. So let's revisit the question. And I want to ask you to pray for Ronnie Garcia. That's his name. Just pray for him. As that name, as the Holy Spirit quickens that name, he's a real hero of mine. So here's the question we want to revisit. Tonight, are you following his example? God became flesh, dwelt among us, lived among us, was tempted, was offended, suffered among us, shows us how to live our lives, and then leaves footprints behind so that we know what to do. You know, the purpose of an example is to inspire us to a better self. Mark Twain, I use that quote, Mark Twain said, there's nothing more annoying than the presence of a good example. Right? Because you want to whine and cry about how hard you're having it, but somebody else who has it harder than you aren't whining and crying. In fact, they're living for God, pastoring a church and planning workers. That takes all of our whining away, doesn't it? It removes all. The presence of a good example is annoying. Why do you have to be in this church? See, the presence of an example, a righteous good one, challenges and inspires your children, your brethren, those closest to you, those whom you love. Because an example has the power to give direction. It challenges us. It brings conviction. It shows us that there's another way. There's a better way. You know, without an example, most people will gravitate to the lowest common denominator in life. When offended, we won't forgive. When suffering, we'll get mad. But you see, our lives are populated by examples, not only Jesus himself, but those around us. A good example has the power to elevate another life. Your life has a force. It has a power that emanates, uh, and you have the ability to lift uh, and elevate others. Let's take uh, the wife, the godly wife who has an unsaved husband. Uh, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husband. Even if some do not obey the word, they will without a word. They may be won by the conduct, by the manner of life, the behavior of the wife. Your life has convicting and conversion power. Your life can make somebody want to get saved. Don't ever underestimate the power of your example. It's incalculable. I don't like using myself as an example, but I thought of this story of how my mother got saved. My wife and I were a mess, a disaster. We got saved, gave our lives to Christ. We're witnessing to our parents who lived in Los Angeles at the time. We're in Tucson. We're witnessing to them over the phone, and they're not grooving on this at all. When I told my dad we're tithing, he blew a cork, went insane. But they came to visit us, and they saw the radical change that had taken place in my wife and I. They visited us for four or five days. I'm a newish convert. I'd probably been saved six months or so, maybe. And I remember the scene so clearly. If I close my eyes, I can see it. It's running like a movie. I'm sitting on the couch. 
My father's pacing nervously back and forth. He wants to get in the car and get on the road and start driving. My mother walks up to me. She gets on her knees in front of me, takes my hands, and says, Paul, whatever it is that you have, I want it. And I prayed a sinner's prayer in the best way that I could. My mother went home, went back to the Catholic Church one time and said, no, this is not where I belong. She found an Assembly of God church a year later. My father got saved, and they both went on to live for God until they both passed away in 2007. In other words, I'm telling my mom about Jesus. But it's not getting through. But when she came and she saw my wife and I, what God was doing, that had such power and such impact in her life. She was converted and made heaven her home. So we have an altar tonight. I can see footprints on this altar that are going to challenge us in these areas of our life. Offense, prayer, suffering, priorities. He set an example for everything. There's not one experience you could have in life that there's not a footprint somewhere that he left behind so that you know what to do. It's never too late to begin to follow the example of Jesus. It's never too late to begin being a good example. Maybe you've been a terrible example. There's an altar to repent. You can rise up from this altar and you can turn it all around and become the example that Jesus wants you to be. Let's bow our heads tonight. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I had more uh, written in my notes, but that sufficeth for now. Our heads are bowed. Our eyes are closed. I feel such a grace of God here tonight. We've taken uh, a little extra time. This evening, rightly so, to honor our veterans. Thank God for them. But we have an altar here tonight. I can't fathom or imagine, as I prepared this sermon, talked it over with a colleague, worked it through, thought about it, prayed about it. This truth brings conviction to my life. Because I know that in every case, maybe I haven't been the example that I need to be. All of us need to live very carefully, recognizing those around us. People are watching. People are being influenced. We're simply living life, pacing our way through our lives, and we're not realizing that others are being affected and impacted. And some of them, the things that we do so nonchalantly and so carelessly is having a lasting impression and impact in their life. The word for Christians is to live circumspectly or carefully. It's like when you're driving down the freeway, you're able to go 50, 60 miles an hour, but there's a lot of traffic. You've got to watch out what's going on around you. You can't just change lanes. You've got to look because you might hit somebody. That's what that word circumspectly means. It means you're cautious. You use your mirrors. You look around. You don't take an action that's going to hurt somebody else. So our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. It's never too late to start following the example of Jesus. And it's never too late. This is what repentance does. You could have been a sinner. You could have set a bad example as I did. Repent, get your heart right, and from that day forward, you start looking for these footprints. You start stepping into them, the ones that Jesus left behind. And as you're stepping into them, others will see you stepping into them. They don't see Jesus, but they see you, and they'll follow your example. There are children, there are brethren that you may not even be aware of. 
that you're making it either harder or easier to live for God. As our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, somebody's moving around for a moment. Perhaps you have come to church tonight. You're not saved. You're not right with God. You don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but you really do want to know him. You know that there is sin, wrongdoing in your life, and you really do want to repent and get your heart right with God. You want to be cleansed and forgiven. And if that describes you, if you've heard this message, maybe some of the truth of it has resonated with you. You know all about being affected by somebody else's bad example. The deepest hurts and the woundings in life come from those that are closest to you. Sometimes it's fathers and mothers and aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters. And we bear deep scars that need healing, and only Jesus can provide that level of healing for our hearts. We need healing from our sin, from our woundings, and only Jesus has the sufficiency to bring healing to your soul. He can forgive your sin and heal the woundings of life. And as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, nobody's moving around for a moment. Perhaps you've come to church tonight. You're not saved. You're not right with God. But you really want to get right and be right. You want to know forgiveness. You want to know what it is to be clean. To not have to live with a guilty conscience. Being fearful. Confused. Condemned. You can be free. You can be clean. You can know that you're right with God. The guilt of former sin can be washed away. That's real freedom. And if that describes you, I want to pray for you tonight. And I want to ask you if you would lift your hand. Pastor, pray for me. I want to repent. I want to get my heart right with God. I want to know Jesus Christ as my Savior. Could you pray for me tonight in Jesus' name? Lift your hand right up and put it right back down all over this building. Amen. God bless you. I see that. Thank you. I see that. God love you. God bless you, my brother. Anyone else? God bless you. I see that hand. Thank you. Anyone else? Lift your hand right up. There's love and conviction here. God bless you. Thank you, sister. I see that. There's love and conviction and grace here tonight. Every time I get down to pray before a church service, I pray that God would bring those that are in need of conversion, bring those whom you're dealing with, unsaved loved ones, backsliders, those that are desperate and without hope, because I believe that God works in conjunction with our services to deal with people to come. That's why you're here tonight. You're not just here of your own accord. You're here because God is working in your life, even if you're unaware of it, because he loves you. Would you join these right now and lift your hand up so that I can say a prayer for you? Maybe you're backslidden. Maybe you're away from God. You need to rededicate your life to Christ. Would you lift your hand? In Jesus' name. All right, if you raised your hand, would you look at me? Did you mean that? Did you guys mean that? Amen, I believe you did. Sister, back there, you meant that. I believe you did. Would you come and let us pray with you right now? Would you come? You raised your hand. Amen. You prayed, brother. Someone's going to come with you. Amen. 
God bless you. I need a brother to come right here, a brother over here on my left. Amen. Thank you, Craig. You lead these in a sinner's prayer. Right there, this guy next to the one your wife's talking to raised his hand. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. This is huge tonight. It's not something that we can ignore. You can't. You can't ignore the fact that we are impressionable and all those around you are impressionable. We have to live carefully because of that. We interact with people. It's so easy for us to do things that become a stumbling block, even for our own children, our spouses, those loved ones that are closest to us. That's why we need an altar. I want my children to watch me put my feet in his steps. That's what they need to see, my prayer life, my devotion to God, my obedience. And when they never see it, We can make it hard for them. Never too late to start. In fact, what's needed in some cases is, you know what? I repent for not being the example that I should have been. From now on, you're going to see mom and dad pray. You're going to see mom and dad faithful. You're going to see mom and dad put Jesus first. You're not going to see mom and dad talk bad about people in the church or gossip. You're not going to hear words of unforgiveness and hatred. That's what I'm talking about. Careful living. Life is fragile. People are fragile. Children are fragile. Loved ones are fragile. Brethren can be fragile. What a powerful statement this text makes. It is worthy of our answering an altar call over. Exampleship, discipleship, leaving, Jesus did, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. That's the only question. Are you following in his steps? That's all that we need to ask. Let's find a place to pray. Everyone standing tonight.